As you well know, we've been in a series called This Is My Story. We've been talking about how the whole Bible, with all of its many stories, is really part of one great narrative, one story about God's great love for us and God's plan to save the world. And, and at times, we've been comparing the Bible as a story to other forms of, of classic literature, other great stories. And, and a key element of, of virtually all great stories is a little bit of suspense, a little bit of mystery, a little bit of uncertainty of how it's all going to turn out, a little bit of darkness. And sometimes that, that darkness actually comes in the form of like a, a horror movie or maybe a, a murder mystery, even if you think about the fairy tales we were told as children or told our children. There's often a, a dark element in Snow, Snow White or, or Cinderella. As we grow up, we watch Star Wars and heard about the dark side. Harry Potter and the growing darkness and Lord Voldemort. The Lord of the Rings, of course, had plenty of darkness. And there's darkness in the scriptures as well. There is something, I think, in all of us that is a little bit afraid of the dark. It, it may not take on full-blown phobia, if you're curious, that's nyctophobia, fear of the dark. But all of us, I think, from childhood, to some degree or another, are at least a little apprehensive, at least a little suspicious when we're in the dark. I mean, we've all heard the warnings, right? There's things that go bump in the night. You avoid dark alleys. Mama told you there's nothing good that happens after midnight. There's dangers lurking in the shadows. The dark, the nighttime is when bad people do bad things. I mean, even if we're not going to go the scary route, we all know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night and to stumble without the lights on and, and bump our toes on a piece of furniture or, or run into a wall. Children know there's wild things that live in the closet. There's the boogeyman who lives under the bed that only comes out when you turn off the lights. That's why so many of us have night lights to keep the boogeyman where he belongs. I mean, how many of us have watched scary movies that happened in the dark? How many of us have, have awoke at night in the dark, from a nightmare. Even, even if we don't go the scary route about the darkness, there, there is something about the dark that is uncertain, that is unknown, that is, that is undisclosed. You just can't see everything, and that can create discomfort. Good or bad or dis, good, bad or indifferent, the darkness is a place of hiddenness where good and bad is concealed. A place where what's really there is obscured behind a cloak of shadow. And in literature and even just in our personal experiences, there's something we might associate with darkness and mystery. I mean, after all, if you can't see it, you don't know it's there. That is mystery. And Advent, the season that we're in, 
is a season of darkness. Before we get to the, the sparkle, the, the bright lights, the pretty stars of, of Christmas Eve, we journal, journey through a season of darkness. Remember last week we started Advent with just lighting one candle. Imagine that, one light shining in the darkness. Today we added one more, and we'll do that every week as Christmas approaches. But Advent is not a season of light. It's a season of darkness. Today's reading from Isaiah chapter 9 said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch-dark land, light has dawned. Those are pretty good descriptors of Advent. People walking in darkness, living in a pitch-dark land. Now, Isaiah was writing to God's people, the Jews, and they weren't literally living in the dark any more than you or I are. It was meant as metaphor. Darkness and light, Isaiah is using as metaphor to explain a a spiritual reality. The people had been through a bad time. They had been uh, taken away as slaves. They'd lived in exile. They'd started to, to put their lives back together, but always under the threat of foreign enemies. And they wondered, will it ever get better? They wondered, will, will God ever fulfill God's promises to make us his chosen people, that we could be a great nation again? Or has God left us? Have you ever experienced darkness like that? Where you wonder if there's any hope? Where you wonder where God might be? There's this term, a Latin term that many spiritual writers use called Deus Abscunditis. Deus, of course, is God. Abscunditis is like the word abscond or absconded. It means to have, have secretly hidden or to have escaped without uh, clarity about where they went. Uh, God absconded. Like God is hiding. God has left the room. God is playing hide and seek. Where is God? When we need them. Now let's be clear. God doesn't hide from us. God doesn't leave us. God doesn't abandon us. Scripture is so clear about that. Jesus said that God is like a shepherd that pursues the lost sheep. God is always pursuing us. We call that provenient grace in the Wesleyan tradition. Psalm 139, 7 through 12 says, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I go to flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will, be dar not da even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You hear the references to darkness? Even the darkness is as light to you. God never abandons us, but we likely all have had those moments where it feels like God is distant, where it feels like God is not accessible. We wonder if our prayers are being heard or answered. 
Sometimes it's because of our sinfulness. We, we say that sin separates us from God, and it's true. Sometimes we just become distracted. There's lots of shiny lights in this world, lots of things that capture our attention, and so God hasn't become distracted from us. We've become distracted from God. Sometimes pain is the issue. Sometimes it's just hard to focus on God when we're in deep pain, physical pain, maybe loneliness, maybe fear, maybe depression, maybe rejection. The, the pain becomes the, the central focus instead of God. And there is some truth that for those of us who actively pursue God, there are times where God allows us to feel a bit of distance, not because God is pushing away, but because God is encouraging us to pursue God more. Great spiritual writers call this the dark night of the soul, where we end up hungering and yearning for more than what we've had. It's meant to grow our faith. But let's be honest, when we need God, when we're hungering for God, when we, when we need God's direction and we can't find God, when we can't hear from God, that is difficult. When it feels like God is cloaked in darkness, that can be frustrating, disconcerting, uncomfortable, scary. Again, I would ask you, when, when have you been through a time of darkness? When has God felt less available to you? How'd you get through it? I think we need to remember that it's in the darkness that light shines the brightest. Turn on the light during the day, you hardly notice it. When the light shines in darkness, it seems to be most profound. It was to people walking in darkness, Isaiah said, that a light has shined. People living in pitch darkness, that a light had come. It's in the mystery of darkness. It's in those dark times, sometimes that revelation, a revelation of God's goodness and love, a light shines for us. The novelist Sumon Kidd says, in the darkness, God becomes the ungraspable mystery, the one who unleashes a tune so spellbinding that we're compelled to follow, to stumble through the shadowed corridors until we find the source of it. We're being drawn beyond where we are into an entirely new way of relating to God, one that's beyond anything we've ever imagined. You see, darkness doesn't have to be only a place of threat or fear. In fact, there's some good work that can only be done in the dark. Think about a blossom that blooms or, or a piece of fruit growing on a tree in the bright sunlight, well, that's only possible because of the work that's happening subterranean, the roots growing out of sight underground. During the winter, we think of those fields in the north that lie fallow under the shadow of, of cloudy skies and maybe under a blanket of snow and ice. Yet, 
recouping from last year's crops before they will be planted again? Or how about those Christmas gifts, those those special secrets under the tree, wrapped, hidden under wrapping and bows until someone gets to be surprised on Christmas Day? Or think about a child like the one that we anticipate on Christmas Day that must first grow and form and mature within the darkness of a mother's womb. Most of us find that each night it's in the dark that we rest and we recuperate from one day's work so that we can begin the next. Some things only happen in the dark. Some things only can be produced in the dark. Some things only can emerge from the darkness. And so Isaiah describes this this light, this metaphor, a light shining in the darkness. He says it's actually not a light at all. It's a child. Verse 6, a child is born to us. A son is given to us. An authority will be on his shoulders. Well, what could be more wonderful than the birth of a child? A new birth, a new beginning full of potential and possibility. That's what he's describing, that, that the birth of a particular child will be so profound that it will be like light, piercing, gloomy, mysterious, frightening maybe, darkness. A child will be born. The, the Gospel of John begins with, with similar words that affirm that there is a child like no other that is a light. There is a light shining in the darkness, John writes, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. Isaiah goes on to tell us more about this child that will be like a light. He says, a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Those are grand titles. Those are powerful words, poetic even, epic. What, what kind of person could bear the weight of such profound descriptors, such profound titles? What, what kind of person would have such great power and importance, such great worth to be described in such a way? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, who but a Savior, who but the Messiah. But I I want you to do something with me for just a moment. I, I want us for a moment to pretend that we don't know who Isaiah is talking about. You, you've been to church enough, you, you know that, that we treat this as a, as a prophecy of a coming Messiah, Jesus, born at Christmas. You've heard Handel's Messiah sung a, a thousand times. Let's pretend we haven't. Let's just take Isaiah at his word that there is some child that will bear these great titles. Now, they're impressive but they don't give us many specific details. And I don't know about you, but but when I'm in the darkness, I'm looking more for data than I am description. I'm looking more for facts than I am inspiration. 
I'm looking for, for details about how things are going to be done than I am some glory of who somebody may or may not be. A light shines in the darkness? Wonderful. A child is going to be born? Fantastic. Who doesn't love that? A son is given? Great. Such optimism, such hope, such positivity. But give me the facts. Who is he? Tell me his name. When is this going to happen? When can I put it on my calendar? Give me the day and the time. Where can I find them? Can you give me an address? And, and, and beside these descriptions, t- tell me what the plan is. What, what's he going to do? How, how is he going to be a light in the darkness? How is he going to make things better? Give me the specifics. Isaiah doesn't do that for us. Isaiah paints in broad strokes. This is word, these are words of inspiration, not description. Those, of course, would come later, only really given to us in hindsight. Luke chapter 2 tells us, in those days, Caesar Augustus declared that everyone throughout the empire should be enrolled in the tax lists. This first enrollment occurred when Quirinius governed Syria. Everyone went to their own cities to be enrolled. Since Joseph belonged to David's house and family line, he went up from the city of Nazareth in Galilee to David's city called Bethlehem in Judea. He went to be enrolled together with Mary, who was promised to him in marriage and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for Mary to have her baby. Well, there's the details that we want. When will it happen? Well, it told us when it happened. During the reign of Caesar Augustus, when he ordered a census to be taken. You can find that in a history book. Where do I find him? Well, it tells us Bethlehem. Well, of course, we should have known the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. How will he come? Born of a young couple, betrothed. A young mother, great with child. Those are the specifics that we're looking for. But we don't find any of that in Isaiah. And it's important for us to remember that when Isaiah first spoke the words, when people first heard these words of promise from Isaiah 9, it would be five centuries before Jesus would be born. Five long centuries before Mary and Joseph made their long trip to Bethlehem. And so we hear in this this passage from Isaiah, this prophecy, both hope and inspiration but yet shrouded in mystery. There isn't a lot of clarity. There aren't a lot of specifics. We don't get the when, the how, the why, the where, the who. And God's promises are often like that, both hopeful and mysterious. Is God faithful? Of course God is faithful. How will God be faithful? Uh, We'll have to wait and see. Will God show up and do what I need God to do? That's what God does. When can I put it on my calendar? That's hard to say. And I would argue that is how it should be. That as soon as we put God in a box, our God has become far too small. Barbara Brown Taylor kind of parodying the the passage here, both from Isaiah and John, says, There is a light that shines in the darkness, which is only 
visible there. There is a light that we can only see when we embrace the darkness, when we accept that darkness is part of the mystery of God's being. The part of being a follower of Jesus Christ is to accept mystery. I mean, how can we claim to have faith if we don't accept the mystery of who God is? Because faith ultimately is belief in unseen things. Paul would say, we can't claim to have hope if we, if we hope for what we already have. It has to be for what we don't yet have or see. Mystery challenges us to embrace faith, to be people of faith, to grow in our faith. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as as I have been fully known. For many years, my favorite word to describe God is the word ineffable. Ineffable. I-N-E-F-F-A-B-L-E. Ineffable. Go look it up sometime. It means that something that is too great to be expressed or described in words. To be inevitable is to be too great to be expressed or described in words. God is ineffable. God is too great to be expressed or described in words. In fact, sometimes when we just say the word God, we're wrong because what we think of God, our idea of God is just too small or erroneous, that God is bigger than our small conceptions of who we think God is. In my personal life, I've discovered that every time I learn something new about God, I discover there's more that I didn't know that I didn't know. That every new revelation reveals to me how much yet is still to be revealed. Every answered question raises new questions I hadn't even considered, and I love that about God. I need a God that is bigger than me, bigger than my capacity, my ability to imagine or comprehend. But it's still a challenge. Accepting that there is a darkness that that, that separates us from fully understanding God, accepting that God is a mystery, isn't easy for people who rely on information, data, facts. How do we take a promise like Isaiah and have any meaning in it, find any meaning in it, that there is a light that shines in the darkness, that there will be a child who will be grand in so many ways? What does that mean to you and me? I think God himself answers that question. After telling us about how the light will shine in the darkness, about this child who will be the Prince of Peace, says in Isaiah 9-7, the zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. The zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. God doesn't offer a set of facts. God doesn't give us a timeline. God doesn't send us a, an FAQ sheet. He doesn't send us a spreadsheet or a roadmap or, or a set of instructions. Instead, God gives us a promise. The zeal of the Lord will do this. 
A child is born to us. A son is given to us. An authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. What do we do when we're in the dark? What do we do when when God is too mysterious for us? We put our faith in the mystery of God. We trust in who God is and in God's promises. The British poet Minnie Louise Haskins once wrote, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth, and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night. I used to have a friend who's no longer with us that occasionally I would ask spiritual questions of, theological questions. He was a wise man. And, and one day I, I asked him such a question. I don't even remember the topic anymore. We were sitting in his living room, and he had a, a little dog that I've, I've since forgotten the name of the dog, but it was there at his feet. And he said, Vance, I think it's a little like this. Imagine I, I take my dog, and we go for a walk at the beach. And, and I pause at the surf line, and, and I say to my little dog, now, now look across the ocean. Way over there, there's a, a nation called Spain, and they speak a different language, and, and they have different customs and different cultures, and I would tell them about all the beautiful cities in Spain. But then I'd have to explain, well, you can't actually see it, because, because dogs' eyes aren't that strong, and the curvature of the earth it really obscures our ability to see it. My little dog wouldn't understand any of that. The only way I could possibly explain such, such concepts to my, my little dog is if I became a little dog, and explained it in dog language. Then he said the problem would be that, that if I became a little dog to explain it to my little dog, the dog language isn't big enough to explain such lofty ideas. He said, Vance, that's the problem. He said, so often we want to know the answers, but we don't have the language. We don't have the ability to conceive who God is fully, or what God is up to. Because God is mystery. And that's what Advent is. A reminder that in the darkness, God is still here. God is still at work. And a plan is unfolding. There is a light that shines in the darkness.